MailChimp presents. Have you ever heard of the dreaded customer? You know, it's when marketers throw their customers into one big messy group, failing to define them by their different needs or habits. It can show up when coupon codes meant for new customers are sent out to everyone, even return customers who can't use the discount. Basically, it's a mess. If you're a marketer, Intuit MailChimp can help you personalize your marketing campaigns so that you meet customers' individual needs instead of missing them. Turn customers into customers by personalizing emails and SMS based on real-time behavior data. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. SMS is available as an add-on to U.S. paid plans only. Visit MailChimp.com for details. I think there are a lot of fears about adoption and a lot of misunderstandings. And one of my fears was, will I go throughout their life feeling that I am somehow not as much of a parent as my parents felt they were to me? And that melted away immediately. Chastin Buttigieg is a former school teacher and the author of the memoir, I Have Something to Tell You. The young adult version of the book came out earlier this year. But these days, his main role is dad. Chastin and his husband, Pete, have been married for four years. Yep, that Pete former presidential candidate and current Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. While Pete was becoming a household name on the campaign trail, Chastin was by his side, and plans for their future family were on hold. About a year and a half ago, my husband came home from work (laughs) and told me, well, he asked me, (laughs) what do you think about running for president? But after the campaigning ended, they were able to focus on a new and equally challenging journey, adoption. And now, Chastin and Pete are dads to twins, Penelope and Gus. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It, a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, I'm asking how people figure out whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking to Chastin Buttigieg about navigating the adoption process while being a gay man in the national spotlight. Did you want kids when you were growing up? Yes, 100%. I always joke with my friends and family that I knew I wanted the Diane Keaton Christmas movie house one day. And I wanted, like, a room for all the kids and the grandkids and, you know, the grand staircase and the big Christmas tree. I grew up around a very large family and always knew that I wanted to to play a part in that one day. I love the picture of it. How did the desire to become a parent one day interact with your experience of coming out? some of those dreams started becoming more and more of a pipe dream. Mm. Because when I first realized I was gay, I just knew that that meant I probably wouldn't have a family. 
probably would never get married. And of course, history proved that wrong. Mm-hmm. But for a while there, it it seemed like I was most likely destined to be a fun uncle, uh, but not a dad. When did it start to feel like a possibility again? I think marriage equality hinted that you can keep dreaming. I had met a few like single gay people who were parents, either from previous marriages or through adoption, but never thought that that was available to me until I met Pete. And then we got married and, and realized that this, you know, this is available to me if, if I want it. Tell me a little bit about how you and Pete got together and fell in love. So I was living in Chicago at the time, and Pete was in South Bend as mayor, and we met on Hinge, a dating app. And I, at the time, was working a summer job where I helped shuffle exchange students around Chicago O'Hare. And one night I was sitting at a gate, B5, and matched with Pete, and we started talking. I believe we were talking about Game of Thrones, and what TV shows we were watching and our favorite travel destinations. And, you know, one thing led to another. And about a month later, I I drove over to South Bend and and visited him for a date, which turned into drinks, turned into dinner, which turned into him pulling tickets out of his pocket for a baseball game. There were fireworks that night at the stadium. You know, it was quintessential Americana romance. But I I, uh, listened to Pete... uh, poke at me every now and then when he's telling our origin story because he says our first date was a bit of an interview for him because (laughs) I was asking too many questions. And one of the things that I asked was if he wanted to be a dad one day. We talked about parenthood on, on our first date and that I didn't see myself chasing a certain career path, but I knew I was always gonna chase being a dad. And I remember him, <laughs> the look on his face was like, is this guy for real? <laughs> I was like, look, I, I rented a car. I drove all the way to South Bend, Indiana. You know, don't waste my time. Yeah. Can you tell me what it looked like when you guys got to a place where you realized, okay, now's the time to give it a shot. Now's the time, you know, to realize this dream for our family. Yeah, so the conversation about marriage was really about parenting. We knew we wanted to get married, and part of getting married was so that we could start a family. Mm-hmm. And of course, shortly after we got married, the conversations about him running for president started bubbling, and that caused us to decide, did we want to pursue the race or did we want to start a family? And We decided to put that dream on hold and go on a different route. And then uh, the moment the campaign was over, we were talking about how that was going to be our our big goal. The first thing we had to decide was whether or not we wanted to pursue adoption or surrogacy. And it was a pretty quick decision for us to, to go the adoption route. And then we started connecting with different agencies. The first agency I called just to sort of get a sense of the process, I called and said, hey, my husband and I are thinking about starting our family, and we would love to know more about the services that you offer. And they said, oh, we don't do same-sex adoptions, and they hung up the phone. Oh, And that was a a fun way to start the adoption process, Um, but we kept picking up the phone and calling other agencies. There's not really a 
at least at the time, it, it was like you Google like how to start a family, <laughs> right. you know, and it's not, there's no like handbook for it. And so I was asking a lot of questions. And then once you start the adoption process, then you're asking yourself a lot of questions about what you're ready for, what you're prepared for. So once you decided, yes, this is what I'm going to do, you're making the cause, how does it feel to be actively pursuing this dream that you've had essentially your whole life? The administrativia of adoption was a little overwhelming. It was just checking boxes, checking boxes, checking boxes. We started doing online classes and listening in on seminars and calling friends of ours who had adopted, some friends who had children of different races. We wanted to make sure that we were prepared. We were reading books that were very friendly towards adoption and books that asked you to think about it through a different lens, a very critical lens. And Mm -hmm. Pete and I had signed up for an emergency adoption list, which meant if there was a baby at the hospital that uh, for some reason or other needed a family, they'll give you a call. But you have to fill out multiple forms letting the agency know whether or not you would accept a child who was born predisposed to substances, who might be going through withdrawal, who might be born with a disability. And you're looking at your partner and you're saying, how could we ever say no? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if they call tomorrow and say, you know, it's your turn, dads. However, there's this situation. Are you confident you can handle it? Which ultimately led to us, you know, checking almost every yes box. We just kind of said, we will open our arms to whatever the universe wants to send our way. But that did require a lot of honest conversations with one another. Yeah, I can imagine. And in addition to that, there's also everything you have to go through with the agency just to be approved. Yeah, so when you ultimately embark on the process, you realize how invasive it can be. So we've decided to open our hearts and our home to adoption. We're really excited. They're like, great, give us a list of five friends who can vouch for your character. We need to interview the grandparents. We need to send somebody out to your house to make sure that you have fire extinguishers and smoke detectors and your tax records, your bank records. They're making sure that your dog is up to date on their vaccines. And then you start doubting yourself, like, am I like worthy enough to be a parent? Did I do this right? And on one side of the coin, you're like, maybe everybody should go through this, you know, and, and just make sure that everyone's legit and like ready to do this. And on the other hand, you're like, this kind of sucks because I feel like, you know, we're jumping through all of these hoops that not everyone has to jump through. But of course, you also are asking someone in the end to choose you and to help them feel safe and confident in their decision that this child or children will be safe with you. Of course, it's all worth it in the end, though, right? But it was surprising. In the end, it just, like when you submit, it's like submitting your master's thesis. Like, here are 150 pages to prove that I am an adult and I am ready to be a dad. (laughs) If you had a superpower, I think it would be patience. Me? Yeah. (laughs) I think you have to. Parenting has tested us in so many ways in the last year and a half. And the ability to stop, take a break, take a breath, be in the moment, and sort what matters and what doesn't matter, and then go forward is really important. 
not just as a parent. Um, you know, we live a very public life, and so there's a lot of noise around our family, and that skill has translated well in in a public role where you're you're able to say, "This doesn't matter. This isn't worth." my energy, this isn't worth my time, and I'm certainly not going to let it seep into the very precious moments that I have with my children. And that has served both of us very well, especially as dads. And the most important thing now is Penelope and Gus. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Bloom Season. When I tell you we went through so many different names, you want to be like very avant-garde, show how smart you are and how well-read you are. At the end of the day, our mission was to get good books into folks' hands. Meet Katie Mitchell. My name is Katie Mitchell. I am in business with my mother, Catherine, and together we run Good Books. As the title suggests, Good Books is all about books. The Atlanta-based pair established the online store in 2019. Their vision for the business was so aligned that they were up and running in a matter of 30 days after the initial idea was birthed. Good Book started at my mom's kitchen table. We were having breakfast, and I was telling her about how my friends were so amazed by the bookshelf in my apartment and the books that were on it. And I saw that there were people who didn't have access or didn't have the knowledge to go out and get those books. And then she said, what if we started a bookstore? Catherine instilled a love and appreciation for Black books in Katie and her brother from their childhood. She had books in the house from day one, and the majority of those books were by Black authors. We never thought that we weren't represented in books because they were all around our house. And our mom just made sure that we saw ourselves and people that looked like our family members in books. Katie was encouraged to read classic Black titles with difficult but important themes from an early age, like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. I look back and I think about when my mom like made me read The Bluest Eye when I was in elementary school. And all my friends were not reading books like that. Katie's mom's recommendations have developed into a central part of their business now, curating books for their customers. So with our custom curations, it was like, hey, I'm interested in reading, but I have no idea what books are available by Black authors on those topics. And so it started at the individual level. And then we also do similar curations for institutions, whether it's universities or museums, to grow their collections. Being based in Atlanta is also central to Good Book's mission, which is why they host events to bring book lovers together in person. We have a dinner book club vibe that we do where people can like commune and also get a good book. For Katie and Catherine, starting a small business was simply an extension of their family's passion to bring a love of literature and representation to their community. 
When people think about good books, I would love for them to feel welcomed. How we're taught about books and reading, it's very formal, it's a little stuffy. It feels like a chore. When you're reading things that make you feel seen, it's the best thing. So I want people to know that good books is the place to get books where they can feel seen. Learn more about Katie Mitchell and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash BloomSeason. And now back to the episode. So I have more than a few friends who have adopted. And when I ask questions about the process, it seems like everybody's is a little different, which makes sense. But the one thing they all say is that you can be waiting for years and then it can happen in a day. Yeah. And once you essentially put it out there that this is something you're interested in or this is something you're open to, like you have to be open to it from the moment you say yes and be okay with the fact that it might take a long time. How did you manage that experience, essentially being on call for an indefinite period? Yeah. So there comes a day when all the paperwork is done and approved. And then there comes a day where they say, all right, you're an active family. So any phone call that came into the phone you want to answer, you know, you're sort of always on edge because it could be any moment. But the thing that they tell you is maybe it's different for other people. The thing that we were told was not to prepare, to not paint the nursery, to not get things ready because you set yourself up for disappointment. Mm -hmm. And we did have five separate adoptions fall through. And every time you get the phone call where they say, we need a family off of the list and we think it's going to be you. And then they never call you back. And then eventually you reach out and say like, hey, what's going on? And, you know, they say, you know, things changed. And of course, if that means that's not your time, then it's not your time. And the most important thing in adoption that I find is that it's meant to be, and it's right for everybody in the situation. Right. So every time, you know, we got the call and then we got the heartbreaking call, of course, you know, over the year, grandparents can't help themselves, but buy things here and there. And then you look in the room and you see all those things in the corner and you, and you can, you know, be a little brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. Um, But heartbreak is out there no matter how you choose to start your family. But then the call does come, you know, and then it does happen. And the call came. Was it one of those moments where you remember exactly where you were and exactly what you were doing? (laughs) So the call came in, uh, I was on my way to Lowe's to pick up some tile. I was helping my dad redo a room in the basement and the agency called and said, I think this is actually it. And I said, you know, you've told me that many times. Don't break my heart here. And they said, I really think this is it. And a couple hours later, they called and said, it's time to come to the hospital. And um, I called Peter and I said, he picked up the phone and he was like really hurried, you know. And I was like, hey, um, uh, are you sitting down? And he was like, yeah. "Um, So the agency called and I think it's our turn. It's like actually our turn. Uh, They need us to come to the hospital right now. 
And he was like, okay, uh, thank you for that information. Uh, I will get back to you. And I was like, are you around a bunch of people right now? And he was like, yes, that's correct. I am uh, on the airplane. We're taxiing to the runway right now. So I will call you immediately when I land. I was like, okay. And I also just need you to know that it's twins. And he was like, okay. And thank you so much for that information. And then like, that was it. Oh my God. (laughs) That's not necessarily how you think that call is going to go. I was like, okay, so I will talk to you soon. And then I tracked his flight from my phone, like waiting for him to land. He called me the moment the plane landed. And it's okay, we need to make a plan. Here's where we need to go. I'm going to get in the car. I drove through the night, like 15 hours. I stopped once for gas. And I rocked up at this little hotel and waited for for Pete to get there from the airport. And then 9 a.m. the next morning, we went to this hospital and they walked us to the nursery and they opened the door and there they were. And they were perfect. They were both sleeping, you know, they're like four pounds. And I remember uh, walking into the room and we were just staring at them. And this nurse looked at us and she said, you can hold them, dads. We just broke down. I was holding Penelope and I remember looking at the nurse and said, how often can we, can we be here? And she said, they're yours. You need to be here 24 hours a day until they go home. And we was like, oh, we got to check out of our hotel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having two feelings. One is that it's so beautiful to hear about you meeting your children and The other is how hard it was for you and how much you had to go through to get there. And on top of that, you guys were, and still are, also managing all of this public scrutiny as gay men embarking on this journey. How did that affect the experience for you? Penelope and Gus were the most important thing in the world to me and to Pete. And of course, I think many people don't understand truly, one, what adoption looks like and all of its intricacies and how it really is a beautiful thing rooted in love. Penelope and Gus came to us because someone made a loving decision and they are surrounded by love every day. And I think family and our kids are the most important thing to all of us. Even the people I know who don't like us I bet you they would say the same thing. Their kids and their family are the most important things in their life. And then there are just circumstances about our story and our existence that some people don't understand or maybe don't want to understand. In those first couple days, Penelope and Gus were going through quite a few health issues, which required constant monitoring. There was talk of, you know, airlifting them to another hospital. We ultimately decided to stay at the hospital we were at. Penelope couldn't like suckle yet. And so we had to eventually put a G tube in and we'd try to get her to take like one milliliter of formula at a time. And you're just looking at them and they're so helpless. And you're their dad. And you're the one who gets to swaddle them and feed them and bathe them, surround them with love. And I remember a couple days in, Pete's phone rang and and, um, I was watching the kids while he was showering Mm -hmm. and I picked it up and it was uh, somebody here on the hill. I don't even remember who it was. And they said, you know, is Pete there? And and I said, oh, I I don't know if you saw the news. Uh, We just became parents. 
And they said, oh, okay, I just need to talk to him for a couple of minutes. And I, I said, no, I'm sorry, we're actually still in the hospital. We just became parents and we're here. Um, and they said, if I could just get five minutes of his time. And I said, respectfully, no, we're at the hospital and we have to focus on being parents in this moment right now, but I'm sure he'll call you back. And it felt so freeing to tell someone <laughs> to like, take some space. Like these tiny, tiny little humans need our help right now. And, you know, there's been a lot of noise. It's just noise. I think the most criticized thing that you see is that photo of us in the hospital bed. And I love that photo. There's so much love in that photo. You know, that's the bed I slept in for two weeks while we were in the hospital. You know, Pete slept on the pullout sofa chair in the room and and I slept in the hospital bed and their little bassinets were right next to us in the room for two weeks until the doctors felt that they were strong enough to be discharged. We didn't go anywhere. We were right by their side for two weeks. You know, and then a a couple weeks later, we were back in the hospital with RSV and and Gus was, he was intubated. He was on a breathing machine for a week. When you feel so helpless and you're at the mercy of medicine and doctors, Twitter doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, people who think they know you and are quick to make a joke at the expense of your child who is connected to a breathing machine, they don't matter. And I think those early days, those early months really tested us and showed us what matters in life. One of the things I always wonder about when you become a parent, do you feel like a parent immediately? Like you automatically step into the role. It's like they need you and you're there, right? But does it feel like that? Does it feel like, oh my God, I'm I'm somebody's dad? I think that's a different feeling for a lot of people. Hmm. At first we were in shock and then you're going through the motions and with all their health complications, you're, you, again, we were doing more paperwork and um, advocating, you know, at different nurses and doctors and you're kind of just, you know, you're responsible for this little human. And then I think for me, because, you know, the adoptions are so tricky and it's not just, you know, kind of a one and done thing. Right. There's lots of you know moving pieces. And so it kind of slowly sunk in that they are safe, they are healthy, we will be okay, and we are a family. I think there are a lot of fears about adoption and a lot of misunderstandings. And one of my fears was, will I go throughout their life feeling that I am somehow not as much of a parent as my parents felt they were to me? Right. And that melted away immediately. How is being a dad a year in? I'm so sore. (laughs) My back always hurts. (laughs) Gus has got to be going on 40 pounds now. And getting that kid out of the bathtub, he is a wet noodle. You (laughs) shut the water off, angry, flopping around, rolling around, does not want to get out of the bathtub. You're trying to like lift with your legs and not your back. And then this kid wiggles just one way and like, I'm on the floor for two days, you know? So... It is pure chaos, like spaghetti on the walls. You know, it's everything. It's everything. And it's so good. I'm not a morning person. I hate waking up in the morning early. But I wake up every day to the baby monitor and I hear Gus going, Dada. (laughs) You look on the monitor and he's like standing in his crib, (laughs) sometimes like head on his his folded arms. His, His arms are resting on the side of the crib. And he's just standing there, Dada. And that's the best way to wake up in the morning. Even when it 
you know, it sucks because you're tired and you're sore and you had one glass of wine, so you're hungover. <laughs> <laughs> it's messy and hilarious and it is, it is the best. They fill my life with so much joy that I didn't know was out there waiting for me. I love seeing the world through their eyes. I love it so much. Clearly, when it comes to parenthood, there's only so much you can really prepare for. You can know you want kids, and there can still be obstacles to having them on your own. You can open your heart and home to children you promise to love and shepherd through their whole lives, and someone may still judge your heart or your home unfit. Chastin is absolutely right. Heartbreak is out there no matter how you choose to go about becoming a parent. But so is love and joy and wiggles. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. Our associate producers are Marina Hankey and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davey Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producer is J.N. Barry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. Want to know what makes a successful email marketing strategy? Well, you could figure out a way to analyze millions of data points from other emails, or you could spend months researching the most relevant content, subject lines, and target audiences for your business. But if you don't have that type of data or that type of time, then you might need some help. And that's where MailChimp comes in. MailChimp sends out billions of emails and analyzes all those data points to offer personalized recommendations for your small business. Like, say you were opening up a new bakery. You know it'd be a good subject line for your email announcement? The best thing since sliced bread. These recommendations can improve your email content, subject lines, targeting, marketing automations, and so much more. Stop wasting time guessing about your marketing strategy and start utilizing informative, personalized, data-backed recommendations from MailChimp. Guess less and sell more with the number one email marketing and automation brand, Intuit MailChimp. Learn more at MailChimp.com. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022.